It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. McKay Coppins has just written the kind of book that Washington and a whole lot of people outside of Washington, cannot stop talking about. It's called Romney, A Reckoning. This book is a 328-page biography of former Massachusetts governor, current Utah senator, and erstwhile presidential hopeful Mitt Romney. It's filled with dishy details, the kind of details you'd think a politician would regret sharing with a journalist. So he read the book, and it was funny— I wondered when I gave it to him if he would sort of sit back and, you know, process and then kind of give me his thoughts. Instead, he was live texting me his reactions <laughs> as he read it, no. which, as you can imagine, made for like a very unnerving weekend for me. McKay did not know exactly how open Romney would get. And then suddenly he just was. The fact that he gave me his journals pretty early on in the process, that that was the first indicator for me that he was taking it really seriously. I remember sitting in church, actually, and getting a text from him saying, hey, McKay, check your email. Uh, I'm sending you something that might be interesting for you to look at. And it was just hundreds of pages of his personal journals that I hadn't even asked for and that I later found out he hadn't even taken the time to reread before giving to me. He really trusted you. He, he trusted me. I think he also was sort of ready to just unburden himself. Romney has always been a bit of a black sheep in the GOP. But since Donald Trump first fired up the Republican base, Romney's really been on the outs. And in two years of conversations with McKay, it became clear that Romney doesn't really care for his Republican colleagues much either. He used adjectives like frightening, smug, and huckster to describe them. At one point, he gave me a bunch of his emails, uh, and I, I found that he had struck up this kind of funny pen pal relationship with Jeb Bush, where huh. they would just send each other kind of, uh, you know, little missives bemoaning the, you know, Trump takeover of their party. Uh, but but look, I think that it's not that he, you know, hates all these Republicans, right? It's more that I think he's kind of heartbroken. A lot of these people are people he respects or once did respect. And he just feels like the last, you know, 10 years or so has been one disappointment after another. In this book, Romney seems to be attempting to be honest about just about everything. Not just politics. Like he tells this one story about the embarrassing moment he soiled himself as a young Mormon missionary. I told McKay that, to me, it all felt like a lot. A kind of mortification of the flesh. I don't think that he was trying to, you know, self-lacerate, right? Like, I don't, I don't think that he was, he was, uh, you know, trying to do that necessarily or to, or consciously, but he is very hard on himself. Do you think he feels lighter in some way now? I hope so. When was the last time he, like, texted you? Uh, yesterday. We, we still talk. <laughs> we still talk. Today on the show... 
the inside story of one man's slow motion exile from his party and why it matters now. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next? Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. So Mitt Romney has been a lot of things over the course of his political career. Like he was governor of Massachusetts, where he created a health care plan that was eventually the model for Obamacare. He was a presidential candidate and in 2012, the Republican nominee for president. And then eventually he became a senator from Utah. I want to hone in on a few distinct moments, if we can, to explain what motivates him as a politician. Like, what are the animating things behind Mitt Romney? And I want to start by talking about his father, George, who was governor of Michigan. You spend a significant amount of time on George. How did his political career influence Mitt's own? Well, his dad looms pretty large in the story Mitt Romney tells about himself. His dad was a pioneering auto executive in Detroit, who later became a liberal Republican governor of Michigan at a time when the liberal wing of the Republican Party was actually still pretty robust. He was, you know, an outspoken advocate for civil rights. He was in this moment when the party was starting to transform around him. And he had actually gone to the uh, 1964 Republican convention where Barry Goldwater was accepting the nomination and sort of famously refused to endorse Goldwater and gave this thundering speech denouncing the rise of conservative extremists in the party. I'm here at this convention because I profoundly believe that present basic trends and perils are rushing us toward a national crisis. And was booed, basically, uh, for for his refusal to get on board. But Mitt uh, was actually at that convention with his dad. What did he make of it? Well, he was a, he was a teenager and really took from his dad's story kind of dueling lessons, because on the one hand, he thought his dad's courage was so admirable and his, you know, his truth telling was so admirable. But on the other hand, he saw that those same admirable qualities sort of kept George Romney from the White House. Yeah, eventually he ran for president and his whole campaign kind of crashed and burned, right? Yeah. In fact, in, in particular, in this one moment, he gave this interview where he was asked about why he had changed his position on the Vietnam War. Um, and George said, 
Well, you know, when I came back from Vietnam, I just had the greatest brainwashing that anybody can get when you... By the generals? When you go over to Vietnam. Well, not only by the generals, but also by the diplomatic uh, corps over there. That word brainwashed became sort of, you know, whatever the equivalent of 1968 viral was, right? It it was everywhere. Um, Republicans piled on. He was denounced in editorial boards and his campaign sort of imploded after that. And Mitt saw that happen. The lesson he took was my dad's, you know, righteous march to the White House was ended by a single poorly chosen word in an interview. And what Mitt told me is that for, you know, his own political career, he was constantly thinking about, I don't want to make the mistake that my dad made. I need to be extremely cautious. I need to be extremely disciplined. Over the course of the book, I really got this sense of how Mitt Romney had an ongoing relationship with Donald Trump that sort of waxed and waned over the Mm -hmm. years. Like they would run into each other and then they wouldn't see each other for a while. Can you just explain the story of how they first met and the impression Trump made and how Romney came to think of that interaction in the ensuing years. Yeah, they first met in the 1990s when Romney was invited to spend a weekend at Mar-a-Lago with Donald Trump and a few other business associates. It was sort of a lark, right? Yeah. You know, it's funny because Romney said he, he didn't really at the time, think of Trump as a serious businessman. He thought of him as sort of a cartoon character, right? But he also said, look, he was famous and outrageous and he was in the tabloids all the time. And Romney thought it would be kind of fun. I can see making this decision like, oh, that'll be interesting. Totally. Well, he (laughs) said, he said, look, I'm not above gawking at famous people. Right. And so, you know, he thought it would be kind of low stakes and memorable and weird and outrageous. And that's exactly what it was. He he talked about uh, when they first arrived at Mar-a-Lago, all the kind of service staff was lined up outside in white linens as though they were at some kind of, you know, Lord's Manor in 19th century Britain. And uh, (laughs) Trump kind of got out and walked by them and offered a stoic nod. And Romney just remembered sitting in the car and thinking, where on earth are we? What is this? You know, when the weekend ended, he left and said, this is a great story to tell. And I'm probably never going to see this guy again. Right. How did Romney first encounter Trump politically? In 2012, Donald Trump was beginning to make a name for himself in conservative media circles by becoming a proponent of the birther conspiracy theory, which was basically this idea that Barack Obama was not actually born in the United States and was therefore ineligible to be president. It was, of course, debunked, not true, but Trump was constantly on TV, on Fox News, you know, talking about it, drawing attention, and he's become kind of a right-wing political celebrity. Mitt Romney at that time was running for president, trying to win the Republican primaries against a slate of much more conservative challengers. And he was told by his advisors, essentially, you have to accept Donald Trump's endorsement. Hmm. Did he want to? No, he did not want to. (laughs) It's funny because I interviewed a bunch of the people who worked for him at the time and they were like, he was so, you know, frustrated by this whole situation. He just he thought that Trump was a buffoon. He thought of him as kind of this sideshow. But he also, you know, Romney has this management consultant side of him, which is show me the data and, uh, you know, I'll make my decision based on that. And and basically the argument that won out was 
if you don't accept his endorsement, he's going to go endorse Newt Gingrich or Rick Perry or one of the other primary candidates and breathe new life into their campaign. And it's better for you to just bite the bullet and do this. And Romney basically accepted that logic. Right. He's like, I have to eat a corn dog at the Iowa State Fair and I have to accept <laughs> Trump's endorsement. <laughs> exactly. And he rationalized it at the time as basically, you know, Donald Trump isn't a serious political figure. He's a celebrity. But it's funny because there's this famous moment in his campaign where he stood on the stage in uh, uh, Trump's hotel in Las Vegas and accepted the endorsement of Trump. And I was actually, as a young reporter, I was at that event. I was covering it. It's my honor, real honor and privilege to endorse Mitt Romney. I've gotten... And I remember Mitt Romney just looking so humiliated. In fact, I think the piece that I wrote that day, the headline they put on it was something like the humiliation of Mitt Romney. <laughs> he wow. he just, you know, he he kind of angled away from the camera when the photo op happened. When he came up to the microphone, he said, There, there are some things that you just can't imagine happening in your life. Uh, this is one of them. Uh, <laughs> being a, not exactly a, like, we're all in this together. Great job. No, no. But, but you know, he just, he, it was one of several kind of unsavory characters he had to cozy up to to win the Republican nomination. And, and you know, it's one of the, the through lines of his story in some ways is that to make peace with the right wing of his party, he had to do things and take positions he, he didn't totally agree with. After the break, Mitt Romney finds himself at a political crossroads. The future of America is in your hands. This is not a movie trailer, and it's not a political ad, but it is a call to action. I'm Mila Atmos, and I'm passionate about unlocking the power of everyday citizens. On our podcast, Future Hindsight, we take big ideas about civic life and democracy and turn them into action items for you and me. Every Thursday, we talk to bold activists and civic innovators to help you understand your power and your power to change the status quo. Find us at futurehindsight.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. So, spoiler alert, Mitt Romney did not win the presidency in 2012. He almost ran again in 2016, but he didn't think he'd be able to beat Hillary Clinton in a general election. He tried out retirement, but McKay says he got bored. He was itching for some way to get back in the game. He was also pretty alarmed that Donald Trump was about to win his party's nomination. As the GOP's previous nominee, he wanted to stop Trump before it was too late. He gave this forceful speech calling Trump out. Let me say that again. There's plenty of evidence that Mr. Trump is a con man, a fake. Mr. Trump has changed his positions, not just over the years, but over the course of the campaign. And on the Ku Klux Klan. Romney even worked behind the scenes to get Trump's Republican primary opponents to coordinate and block him from securing the nomination. Spoiler alert number two, that didn't work either. And so Romney found himself once again with nothing to do. But then, ahead of the 2018 midterms, long-term Utah Senator Orrin Hatch reached out to Romney, said he was thinking of retiring 
and that he wanted Romney to run for his seat. Which was interesting because Mitt Romney, you know, was not from Utah. He was the governor of Massachusetts. He had been raised in Michigan. But he was sort of a hero in this state. It was almost like an adoptive home state. He had famously taken over the Salt Lake City Olympics in 2002. So he he was well known. And then, of course, as the first, you know, Latter-day Saint to win a major party presidential nomination was sort of kind of the Mormon Al Smith. Right. And so he was he he was well liked in Utah. And and when Hatch presented this idea to him, he took it seriously. But it was at a tricky moment in, in Republican politics because he was not a Trump fan and had really never gotten on board. And so the the prospect of running for Senate, coming back to Washington at a moment when his party was sort of being taken over by Donald Trump was, I think, both daunting, but also very tempting for him in some ways. Yeah, did he know he was going to be the skunk at the picnic when he showed up? He had this idea that I think now it's easy to look back on and say this was pretty naive. But, you know, in the summer of 2017, when he was thinking about, you know, whether to run or not, he had this idea that he could get to the Senate and steer the party away from Trumpism. It it was still possible at that moment to think that Trump would be remembered as this one-off fluke, that, you know, this whole thing was kind of an aberration and that if enough Mitt Romneys, you know, got into positions of power and kind of spoke up, the fever would break, right? And he believed that if he could get to the Senate, he could empower the best in his party to speak up against Trump and, uh, and everything would return to normal. And You know, I heard about these times over and over where Republican senators would sort of sidle up to him in private and say, you know, I'm so glad you're out there saying what you're saying about Donald Trump. Um, Hmm. And and I wish I could say the same thing. But, you know, I don't have the same constituents you do. I have to worry about reelection. Did you think that was bullshit? It drove him crazy. (laughs) He hated it. It, I mean, you would get so angry. I, I, you know. At one point, he started keeping a tally of how how many times this happened, and he said it got up to over twelve. He's he eventually developed like a a go to line for this, where uh, when somebody would say something to him, he'd say, "Well, there are worse things than losing an election. Take it from me." Hmm. Yeah. Eventually, he has to decide how he will vote on the first impeachment of President Trump, and this was a striking story from your book to me because you talk about how. During this moment, Romney was actually leaning toward acquittal of the president. Mm -hmm. But then Lindsey Graham made this argument that even if the accusations against Trump were true, it still would not matter. And this just got under Mitt's skin. Like it went against everything he believed as this kind of guy who envisions himself as a stand-up person. And eventually he voted to impeach the president. I'm just curious what you made of how he came to his decision. First of all, he did take the the Senate trial very seriously, which made him uh, kind of uh, unusual for his caucus. Uh, you know that I report about how at the beginning of the Senate trial, Mitch McConnell told his Senate colleagues in the Republican caucus meeting that this is not really a trial; it's a political process, and you should act like politicians. And Mitt Romney just fundamentally disagreed with that. He he had you know been reading the Federalist Papers and <laughs> poring over constitutional scholarship, and ba- basically said, I-, "I think that what we're supposed to be doing is acting as impartial jurors, setting aside our partisan prejudices." But you know he was basically the only one in his party doing that. 
he started to realize that there would be a historical precedent set if Donald Trump was just completely acquitted by every member of his party after behaving so undemocratically. It would be making what Mitch McConnell said true. This is a political process. Exactly. And in Romney's mind, it would create a precedent for future presidents where basically they would feel liberated to strong arm foreign governments into, you know, doing political favors for them by withholding military aid, which was what that whole first impeachment trial was about. And Romney just felt that Trump was already so kind of un- <laughs> unbridled by, you know, historical norms and precedents that to to just create one more precedent uh, of this, this behavior being okay was dangerous. And so he, you know, I will say, he wanted very badly to vote for acquittal for for more kind of selfish reasons, right? He he writes in his journals throughout that period about how the consequences of voting to uh, convict would would be pretty bad for him. He he went through the worst case scenario, which would involve you know threats of violence to him and his family, the prospect of possibly having to move away from Utah. He had fears that like his sons would get audited or that the, you know, Trump, Trump controlled federal government would come after their businesses. But it was ultimately just as simple as conscience convincing him that he had to vote to convict. The grave question the Constitution tasks senators to answer is whether the president committed an act so extreme and egregious that it rises to the level of a high crime and misdemeanor. Yes, he did. It was a hard decision for him, but it, I think it was ultimately one of conscience. After he voted to convict, did Romney's fears come true? Some of them certainly did. I mean, you know, he did lose friendships. He lost relationships in the party. He became much more of a pariah in the Senate caucus lunches, which he said he kind of would never really feel comfortable in after that that vote. He also, just moving through the world, had to get used to a certain amount of heckling and, you know, confrontations from Trump supporters. Um, in fact, it was about a year after that that he was flying back to Washington, D.C. from Salt Lake City, and he was confronted by a large group of of Trump supporters in the airport and then later on his flight where they're chanting traitor and, uh, you know, demanding that he he support the president. And he he did, to a certain extent, become a a villain in his own party. And I think he expected that to a certain extent, but I think actually experiencing it was pretty jarring for him. Well, then eventually we get to January 6th. Which is actually, it's actually where you start your book because it's some of where your most shocking reporting emerges. It begins with like this text that Mitt Romney sends to Mitch McConnell, basically warning about what might be to come on January 6th. And Mitch McConnell never texts him back. You also talk about how Romney yells at Josh Hawley, you know, you did this, essentially, that you brought this on. It sounds like January 6th was just where everything kind of broke for Romney. Yeah, it's it's interesting because I think Romney, his natural way of being is sort of, you know, this kind of 
amalgam of Mormon niceness and prep school manners and, you know, uh, the, you know, the practiced cool of the wall street banker types. And, and so he, he's very good at, and has always tried very hard to control his emotions in public. And on January 6th, he just lost it. And, you know, he shouted at his colleagues. Um, he gave this really, uh, angry speech uh, later that night, denouncing those who had gone along with the election lies that Donald Trump was spreading. What happened here today was an insurrection incited by the president of the United States. Those who choose to continue to support his dangerous gambit by objecting to the results of a legitimate democratic election will forever be seen as being complicit and even today, you get him to start telling that story and he gets angry all over again. It was in some ways almost kind of a radicalizing moment for him. You know, your book is coming out at this particular moment in time. Never Trumpers are making this splash. Like Adam Kinzinger has a memoir out right now, too. I wonder why pay attention to these people at this juncture? Like they've lost or given up power. Like, why do you think now is the time to give them this space to express themselves? And I wonder, too, whether you consider your book almost a requiem for what Mitt Romney wanted to do? I I think I, I, I would put a more hopeful spin on it, which is that the story of Mitt Romney is one of grappling with difficult questions, right? I mean, he, by his own admission, spent a lot of his career courting the right wing of his party, some indulging them, sometimes doing things that he wishes he hadn't done to win their approval, to win their votes. And he, like a lot of Republicans, uh, thought that they could do that while still remaining in charge, right? We can we can flirt with the conspiracy theories. Uh, we can, you know, throw some red meat out in the in the rallies. We can show up on Fox News primetime shows. But at the end of the day, we're the adults. we're we're in charge of this party. We'll run the government. And, you know, every four years, we'll ask them for their votes. And what happened in 2016 is those far right elements of the party took over and they are now in control. And I think that there are important lessons to take from that in the story of, you know, Mitt Romney. And I hope that a next generation of Republican leaders, whether it's the ones coming up in the next 10 years or, or you know, further further on, look at Mitt Romney's story and realize that there is value in not selling yourself out for re-election, right? <laughs> I asked Romney what what his advice is to to young people today. And and the one of his go-to pieces of advice is basically don't sacrifice your principles at the altar of ambition because it's not worth it. You know, Mitt Romney is unique in that while he himself is this moderate Republican, as Republicans go, he comes from a political family and not everyone is like him, like his niece, Ronna McDaniel, who's the chair of the Republican National Committee. She was handpicked by Donald Trump and has defended Trump a whole lot. Mm -hmm. You report in your book that Mitt and Ronna basically never discuss politics, which seems so nuts to me. 
Like, it just seems like a missed opportunity, like a prioritization of a cordial relationship versus having a conversation that could maybe shift how Republican politics work. I just wonder, does Romney see it that way? Do you? I think that Romney does not think that he would have any success in changing his niece's mind Um, and that talking, you know, fighting with her a lot about politics probably wouldn't wouldn't accomplish much. You know, I don't know enough about the intricacies of their relationship to say whether I agree with that. But, you know, you can certainly understand the impulse. I think all of us have that one relative or loved one that talking to them about politics drives you crazy, right? I know, but usually that person is not like steering the political priorities for the, for the Republican Party. Here's what I'll say, though. There is one moment that I recount in the book where he does confront her. And it was after uh, the RNC put out a statement that seemed to suggest that uh, what happened on January 6th was legitimate political speech. And Romney did call Rana McDaniel after that to ask her, you know, what on earth are you doing? What is this statement? Right. And she sort of walked it back and said, no, 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 it's being taken out of context, whatever. And he said, okay, fine. And, and the RNC did eventually, you know, walk back the statement a little bit, but it was interesting because Romney kind of reflecting on that conversation, uh, told me that, you know, they know that they're playing with fire right? The, all these institutional Republicans who are carrying Trump's water and making excuses for his election lies, they have to know on some level that they're indulging the worst impulses of members of their party, but they're trying to walk this line. And Romney knows about walking this line, right? He's walked this line himself at various points in his career. I think he understands and maybe even sympathizes with the psychology of the Republicans who who do keep crossing those lines. Yeah, could he have reached this point as a young politician? Well, I asked him that question and, and I got a really interesting answer from him. I, 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 the way I put it to him was, would you have taken the same sort of lonely principled vote to convict Trump if this had happened 30 years earlier, if you had been in this position 30 years earlier? And he sort of thought about it and kind of wasn't sure what to say. And he said, I finally said, I don't know the answer to that. I think I recognize in myself an ability to rationalize decisions that are in my self-interest. And I don't know that I recognize that to the same extent back then. And I thought that was a really honest answer. And one of the themes of this book is sort of his his capacity for self-justification and rationalization and, and the capacity that he's seen in all kinds of political leaders throughout his career, including today. He's ready for new people to to step up. Um, and so that's sort of where he what what he's pinning his hopes to, I think. Does he think those new people exist? Well, that's the problem, right? I mean, it, I, when I ask him to identify, you know, who are the young Republicans that you you like and that you're excited about, I don't I don't know that I've gotten a lot of names. I, I think that the problem is that Trumpism has so fully, captured the party, the broader conservative firmament that I just, it's hard to see, you know, where the, the, you know, next generation of Mitt Romney's is coming from. 
it, it could be that we're just in the midst of a, a massive political realignment and that people who share Mitt Romney's politics end up being moderate Democrats in the future. Um, I, I, I don't I really don't know, but it's not uh, it's not clear to me who that next generation of Republicans is. McKay Coppins, I'm super grateful for you coming on the show and dishing to me about your book. Thanks for doing it. Hey, thanks for having me. McKay Coppins is a staff writer at The Atlantic and the author of Romney, A Reckoning. And that's the show. If you're a fan of what we're doing here at What Next, the best way to support our work is to join Slate Plus. Go on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus to find out more. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Rob Gunther, Anna Phillips, Paige Osborne, and Madeline Ducharme. We are led by Alicia Montgomery, with a little help from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate. And I'm Mary Harris. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you back here next time. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit amfam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.